Section 15 of the Empresses of Constantinople. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 10. Two Sisters. Part 2. The Empress Zoe. From Constantinople by A. E. Grosvenor. After this authentic episode, it is superfluous to seek to determine the share of Zoe in the illness and death of her first husband. The monk eunuch was capable of any crime, and it is perhaps not likely that he would take others into his confidence in perpetrating them. His brother Michael was a feeble-minded man of no criminal instincts, whom we shall presently find smitten with the deepest remorse for the part he had played. Zoe also was little more than a tool in the hands of John. Had he communicated his criminal design to them, they would probably have consented, but there is no evidence that he did so. The marriage, however, is a sordid fact that no casuistry can excuse. It would no doubt be represented to Zoe that delay would give an opportunity for a revolution, and there were always at Constantinople nobles who were ready to aspire to the throne when so excellent a pretext was afforded. These considerations may explain, but cannot excuse Zoe's action. She was almost, if not quite, devoid of moral feeling. The utmost we can say for her is that it was not merely her passion for Michael that gave such indecent precipitancy to a woman of fifty-four years, but she had no children to protect, and she lent herself to this disgraceful procedure merely in order to retain her royal position. We read, therefore, without the least sympathy, that while the change made the fortune of the astute John and his brethren, it brought great disappointment and chagrin to Zoe. She had, the chronicler says, imagined that the lowly chamberlain, grateful for his elevation to the throne, would be her slave, and she at once gathered about her the former servants of her father and began to rule. But the monk had no intention of handing to her the power he had purchased so heavily. His official position was merely that of Orphanotrophus, or director of charitable institutions. His real position was that of emperor. Most of the brothers were able men, but Michael was, as John probably took into account from the first, epileptic and incapable of self-assertion. John, therefore, took the reins in his own hands. He summarily dismissed Zoe's eunuchs and maids, and put about her an army of servants in his own employment, so that she could not even go to the bath without the permission and knowledge of the eunuch. To the empire, and its affairs, it may be said he devoted the most careful and intelligent attention. Even in the midst of a solitary carouse, for the monk was fond of wine. He would turn with alacrity to any pressing business. It was only in the dishonest enrichment of himself and his brothers, whom he had once promoted to the highest commands, that he overreached himself. One noble, only, the Constantine de Lassinus, who had so narrowly missed the empire and the hand of Zoe, rebelled against this division of the empire among a family of low-born eunuchs and money-changers, and the punishment of Delasinus so well illustrates the world in which Zoe now found herself that it may be briefly recounted. John secured the loyalty of the senators by a generous distribution of money, and then sent a eunuch to assure Delasinus, who was in Armenia, that his conduct would be overlooked if he disarmed at once. Delasinus required some tremendous security of such a promise in the part of John, and it was left to the clergy to devise a new and particularly ponderous oath. The evolution of the oath in Byzantine life is one of the many ways in which we trace the degradation of its character. 
no one had any longer the faintest confidence in oaths on the true cross or the sacrament. A group of clerics were therefore sent with the most sacred objects in the reliquaries of Constantinople, and they marshaled before the eyes of Delasinus the cross, the napkin bearing a miraculous image of Christ, the original letter of Christ to King Abgar, and the portrait of Mary painted by St. Luke. On these portentous relics an oath was taken that no punishment would be inflicted on him. He submitted, and a few months later, when the people of Antioch rose against their oppressive tax-gatherers, the revolt was subtly traced to the distant noble, and he was exiled and ruined. Zoe tolerated the domination of the odious monk for a few years, impatiently, and at length made an attempt on his life. She won one of the eunuchs whom John had placed about her, and directed him to offer John's medical attendant a vast sum of money if he would poison his master. But by one of those convenient accidents which commonly happen in novels and in Byzantine history, the doctor's boy discovered the plot and denounced it to John. Her eunuch was drastically punished, and Zoe was treated worse than ever. At the same time, her condition became more unpleasant, because Michael's illness became worse. The popular belief in Constantinople was that a devil had invaded the emperor to punish him for his mendacious denial of Romanus, of intimacy with Zoe. Men told of the suddenness with which the quiet, rosy-cheeked emperor would be at any moment converted into a frothing maniac, and it was noticed that, on the rare occasions on which he appeared on the throne, purple curtains were looped in readiness about it, and servants stood to draw them round the throne if the devil should choose that moon to indulge his frolics. Even the Byzantine writers take the theory seriously, though some of them offer the alternative theory of insanity. We recognize the symptoms of epilepsy, and see that Zoe's choice had failed. Between attacks, Michael had seemed to have believed in the devil, was gloomy and penitent. He and his brothers walked barefoot through the city, at the head of processions bearing the swaddling clothes of the infant Christ, and all the other priceless relics I have mentioned. But the only answer of the heavens was a storm of such hail that the stones crashed through the tiled roofs. He visited shrines, built churches and monasteries, showered gold on the clergy, and even gave a baptism fee to every newborn babe. And famine, pestilence, and earthquake vexed the overburdened empire, and men cursed Michael and his brothers. At length, dropsy was added to epilepsy, and Michael determined to resign and enter a monastery. Zoe seems by this time to have been completely cowed by the arrogant monk, and she made little opposition when he went on to provide a new and strange aspirant to the throne. His sister Maria was, as I said, married to a shipcocker named Stephen, who had been put in command of the fleet. They had a boy named Michael, a vicious youth, but young enough to submit to his uncle's rule if he obtained the crown, and the emperor and Zoe were persuaded, or coerced, to adopt this child and clothe him with the dignity of Caesar. One of the chroniclers tells that they deceived Zoe by representing the boy as the son of a noble matron. Some such fiction may have been served to the populace, but Zoe could hardly be deceived on the point, and even the people were not long deceived, if at all since he had passed into history as Michael the Cocker. In the chapel at Blacherne, the boy was accepted into the imperial family, after swearing the customary ponderous oaths to respect Zoe as his mother and mistress, it is not impossible that Zoe felt that this adoption of a son who was to wear the crown made her own position more secure. Some time afterwards, Michael the Fourth retired to a monastery, 
and Michael V began to look forward to his imperial opportunities of indulgence. The next course of events is not quite clear, but it seems that the retiring emperor felt some scruple about his action, and had relegated the boy to a house without the walls. He died, refusing to see Zoe, soon afterwards, 10th December, 1041, and John forged a letter in his name, bidding the guards deliver the young Caesar, and brought him to the palace. We are then told that Zoe asserted her power, bestowed the crown on the youth only on the strictest promise of obedience to her, and expelled the three brothers, John, George, and Constantine, from the palace. It seems more likely that the brothers quarrelled with each other. John, promising the most absolute power to Zoe, had his younger brothers exiled. And then Constantine intrigued with the young emperor, and displaced his brother. These details are of little moment for our purpose, but the spring of 1042, three months after the death of her husband, we find Zoe sharing the power with her adopted son and his uncle Constantine, and a fresh chapter of romance opens in her story. Constantine apparently urged the youth to get rid of Zoe and rule alone. A vicious and conceited youth, he was little troubled by the oaths he had taken a few months before, but he felt it necessary to proceed cautiously. He began to slight Zoe, then to treat her with disdain and harshness. He confined her to her palace and refused to let her control the treasury. One day he announced that one of those imperial processions through the city which the people regarded as opportunities to express their feelings and rode out alone. To his delight he was received with the liveliest rejoicing. The citizens hung their choicest silks and tapestries before their houses, and displayed their silver and other treasures on their balconies as they were wont to do on the most festive occasions. Elated with his apparent popularity, Michael consulted his unofficial council of fast-living young sportsmen as soon as he returned to the palace, and they decided to dismiss Zoe at once. It is said that Michael himself brutally told her of his decision, and even slapped the fair face of his adopted mother. The charge he put forth was that she was preparing a poison for him. It would not be difficult to believe if there were any serious evidence, but it was probably only a pretext to get rid of her. That night she was put on a ship at the quay, rowed to the islands, and consecrated a nun. On the following day, however, the laments of Zoe were cut short in a very unexpected manner. A boat came at its highest speed from the palace, and a royal official bade her at once return to her dignity. The people had resented the flagrant conduct of her adopted son, and he had hastily summoned her to the palace. A herald had been sent into the public square to announce that the most pious emperor had disposed his mother and the patriarch for conspiring against his throne, and would himself care for their interests in their future. From the sullen crowd a voice protested angrily that they— "'Wanted their mother Zoe, not the son of a cocker!' It was repeated fervently on every side, and the prefect had to fly under a shower of stones. Then the crowd poured into the cathedral, from which the patriarch had not yet departed, and a noisy debate took place. A council of the clergy and senators was then held in the church. The singular resolution was taken to bring Theodora from her convent, and clothed her with the purple. The younger sister of Zoe had— it will be recalled, been compelled by her to take the monastic vows at Petrion eleven years before, and this sudden recall to life, a recall without precedent, since she was not summoned for the purpose of marrying, gave a remarkable turn to her career. She had passed from the luxury and dissipation of her father's palace, with a brief interval of independent life, to the shade of the monastery, and now she was to spend her last fifteen years of her life on the imperial throne. 
She was of sterner stuff than Zoe, and the senators must have concluded that she alone could check the audacity of the low-born Paphlagonians. This does not in itself argue any great strength of character in Theodora. We must remember that there was always a party of ambitious eunuchs or statesmen behind each of the names that is put forward by the historian. When the news of this decision reached Michael, the crowd stormed angrily at the gates of the palace. He sent an officer on a swift vessel to the prince's island for Zoe. In the palace she was quickly stripped of her nun's robe and clothed in her former garments. It is clear that Michael's uncle, Constantine, who was not without ability, directed the campaign in the palace. Michael was advised to take Zoe with him into the imperial lodge overlooking the hippodrome, and show the citizens who had gathered in the enclosure that all was well. The reply he got was a shower of stones, arrows, and epithets, and as the chroniclers remark, the young lion became at once a timid hare, and proposed to run for shelter to the monastery at Studion on the Asiatic side. His uncle prevented him, however, and marshaled the guards in the fore part of the palace. The battle which followed ended in a complete victory for the people. Constantine and Michael fled across the water to Studion in the early morning of Wednesday in Holy Week, and the new empress, Theodora, was conducted into the palace over the corpses of some three thousand of the combatants. The royal sisters, it will be understood, did not fly into each other's arms. Theodora had to thank Zoe for eleven years of confinement, and Zoe herself was very reluctant to share her power with her younger sister. However, a formal reconciliation was arranged by the senators, and the two empresses sat side by side to receive the homage of the leading citizens, and decide what was to be done with the late emperor and his uncle. If there were any who wondered in what spirit Theodora would wield her power after a decade of religious life, they were not left long in doubt. Zoe asked what the will of her advisers was in regard to the fugitives, and such cries as, "'Out with her eyes! and Crucify them!' rang furiously through the chamber. Zoe recoiled and pleaded for leniency. But Theodora, a much better speaker than her sister, sternly ordered the prefect to see that their eyes were put out. A great crowd crossed the sea with the officers and saw Michael, who had hidden under the altar, and his more stoical uncle dragged from the chapel. The same crowd had applauded Michael in his procession hardly a week before, and now they stood by with wild delight to see the brutal sentences carried out. It was 21st April. Michael the Cocker had reigned for four months. For a few weeks the Imperial Sisters ruled their kingdom in complete harmony and with exemplary zeal. Monsieur Deal, too lightly following the censorious Celis, rates the intelligence and character of both at a very low level, but that estimate is hardly supported by the facts. Few emperors had dared to attack the administrative corruption of the empire as Zoe and Theodora attacked it, in the first freshness of their power, and as we have every reason to believe that they would have continued to attack it. For centuries the state had been the easy prey of ambitious eunuchs at the court and corrupt officials in the provinces. Zoe and Theodora issued decrees to the effect that all injustice must cease and that the law must be administered with equity. They themselves sat on the highest tribunal of the city to hear cases, and the sale of offices was strictly prohibited. The accounts of the late chief minister were examined, and Constantine, eyeless and shaven, was brought from his monastery to explain the enormous deficiency. The power of his family was broken forever, and the miserable man disclosed that fifty-three hundred pounds of gold, nearly a quarter of a million sterling, 
was hidden in a cistern in his house. Legates and petitions were heard with dignity by the royal sisters, and it must have seemed to many that the empire had, by this singular adventure, obtained juster and finer rulers than it had known for many a century. We cannot discriminate in the joint public action of the sisters, but it is clear that the strong will and intelligence of Theodore were the chief power of the administration. How drastically the empire needed such a purification may be gathered from the fact that when the patriarch Alexis died in the following year, a secret and dishonest hoard of gold, amounting to more than one hundred thousand pounds, was discovered in his palace. This brilliant example of feminine rule might have been expected to disarm the old Byzantine prejudice against women, but prejudices of that nature are too deeply rooted to be displaced by facts. The cry was raised that an emperor was needed, and Zoe once more expressed her willingness to marry. The careful chronicler tells us that her conduct was not necessarily inspired by a carnal feeling—she was now sixty-two years old—that she may have feared that Theodora and her ministers wished to dislodge her. Her age, no less than the remarkable conditions of her third and last marriage, will easily persuade us that the motive was political. There were those who said that, as Theodora had been the chief agent in expelling Michael, the throne belonged to her alone, and Zoe sought an ally. The first noble chosen by her was Constantine de Lassinos, who had almost obtained her hand and the throne fourteen years before. But Constantine, when he visited at the court for inspection, proved so brusque and independent that he was again dismissed. Her next choice was Constantine Carapano, a handsome officer of the palace with whom, in spite of her age, the gossips of the court already connected Zoe somewhat too intimately. Constantine, however, had a wife living, and this lady is said to have poisoned him as soon as she heard of the proposal to divorce her. If we may believe the gossipy chronicles, Zoe met the disappointment of tranquillity as she had another lover among the officials of the palace. Constantine Monomachos, a very handsome and distinguished and dissolute noble, had been exiled from court to Mytilene by Michael IV on the suspicion of intimacy with Zoe, and had for some years gilded the hours of his distant exile with the enjoyment of letters, the pleasures of the table, and the affection of a pretty and devoted cousin. When his second wife had died, he had obeyed the injunction of the church to refrain from a third marriage, and had been content with the free companionship of the beautiful Srelina, a sister of the distinguished noble Romanus, a member, that is to say, of one of the proudest Byzantine families. She had followed her lover to Lesbos, used her fortune to mitigate the harshness of his exile, and was living with him at the time when Zoe recalled him to court. Handsome as Achilles, uniting a prodigious strength with a singular delicacy and elegance of appearance, equally devoted to the robust pleasures of the chase and the enervating delights of love, Constantine Monomachos at once returned to his place in the heart of the aging empress, and was invited to wed her. He is said to have stipulated beforehand that the fair Sclerina should be allowed to come to Constantinople, and Zoe genially consented. They were married, and Zoe entered upon the last and strangest part of her strange career. While the sexless Theodora continued to rule the empire and put out the eyes of her enemies, while Constantine reveled in the new and more exquisite luxuries of his position, Zoe seems quietly to have enjoyed the secure and restful days which her marriage obtained for her. She still, with her maids, compounded and distilled the perfumes which were almost her one luxury, but she now paid a scrupulous attention to her devotions, and burned much incense before the icons. Sclerina, 
at first dwelt apart, and Constantine set about building magnificent palace for her, thinly veiling his liaison with the pretense of going daily to see the progress of the works. As the citizens smiled at the connection, and Zoe seems to be piously indifferent to it, he became bolder, and asked Zoe to allow him to bring Sclarina to live in the palace. Again Zoe consented, and the ménage à trois was maintained in the most pleasant harmony. She gave Sclarina a title of empress, embraced her when they met, with entire good will, and showed her such consideration that she never visited her husband without first ascertaining if he was disengaged. Constantine occupied the central part of the palace, and his wife and mistress had apartments on each side. Although Zoe now approached her seventieth year, she still retained the freshness of her complexion and had no wrinkles. Celis says that a stranger would have been sure that she was still a young woman. She shared the pleasures of the gay court and made no protest against the frivolous Constantine emptying the treasury on his mistress. If we may believe implicitly all the details given by Celis, there was little delicacy in the fun which enlivened the gardens or halls, for Zoe disliked the open air of the sacred domain. Music and skillful dancing were too fine for his appreciation. He liked the broader merriment of mimes, and took special pleasure in imitations of stammering. His chief entertainers would go so far as to represent pantomimically the chaste Theodora lying abed in childbirth, and Theodora herself joined in the loud laughter of Constantine as the man imitated the shrieks which befitted such an occasion. The months passed very merrily, and the treasury emptied. And as the treasury emptied, and the citizens saw their funds passing into the marvellous palace which Constantine was building for Sclarina, clouds began to gather over the life of the epicure. One day, in the year 1044, as he rode with his guards at the head of a religious procession, a cry broke from the crowd, "'We don't want Sclarina as empress, nor to see our lawful mistress Zoe and Theodora perish on her account!' The cry was a spark to the spreading discontent, and the small troop of guards were surrounded by a threatening mob. Fortunately for the emperor, the empresses were watching the procession from the balcony, and they sent troops to rescue him. Later, a discontented noble sent some Macedonian troops against the city and encamped opposite the Bucerna gate. Constantine disdainfully ordered a chair to be placed for him outside the gate in order that he might see and be seen by the rebels. For a time they were content to sing comic songs about him, of which there must have been a good supply in the city. Then they made a dash, and scattered his guards, and could have penetrated into the city, possibly taken it, if they have not foolishly retired. On such slender threads did crowns hang in the singular empire. Sclarina relieved the growing discontent by a premature death, apparently about the year 1045, and the superb palace which had been intended for Constantine's mistress was turned into a monastery. Five years later, Zoe closed her long and romantic career at the age of seventy. Constantine mourned for her as she had been a beloved child, and even pressed the church to put her on the list of the canonized. He may have read how St. Theodora had won the oriel, largely by her freedom from jealousy. When it was found, after a time, that some curious fungi had grown about her monument, he insisted that they were heaven-sent assurances that Zoe had been admitted at once into the company of the saints. The Greek church, however, was not persuaded to add Zoe to its quaint list of the blessed, and few will reflect on the many events which revealed her personality to us without admitting that, whether or not she was guilty of the positive crimes attributed to her, she had little or no moral feeling. 
Constantine found consolation in the charms of a young Ellen princess who was detained as a hostage at Constantinople. The milk-white skin and fine eyes of the unknown so fascinated him that he gave her the imperial title and emptied the remainder of the treasury upon her and the relatives who flocked to share her fortune. He was by this time a miserable wreck of his former magnificent person and could not sit unaided on a horse, but the court still rang with laughter and buffoonery. His favorite, a man who had been raised from the position of street buffoon to that of court jester, became so infatuated with his wealth and privilege that he dreamed of possessing the pretty Allen princess and the purple. He was caught in Constantine's bedroom with a drawn sword. The emperor asked why he had attempted assassination, and when the man said that he had an irresistible passion to see himself in the crown and imperial robes, burst into laughter and ordered the attendants to put them on him. He returned to his position, and to the amusement of Constantine made more open love than before to the fair Circassian mistress. But the emperor died in 1054, and his mistress returned to her previous obscurity. When it was seen that Constantine was failing, a number of the nobles and officials conspired to put on the throne Nicephorus Briennius. But Theodora's supporters forestalled the plot. They sent a swift vessel for her, and lodged her in the sacred palace before their opponents could bring Briennius from Bulgaria, which he governed. She seems to have been forced out of the affairs during the latter years of Constantine, and the sending of a boat implies, apparently, that she had retired to the suburbs. She was still, in her seventh decade of life, erect of form and clear in mind, and drastic punishment was inflicted on the conspirators. She then began again to control the affairs of the empire as she had done in conjunction with Zoe. She personally received ambassadors and heard trials, and resumed her war on corrupt officials. Celis is disdainful of her rule, and unjust to her. The only grave defect we can recognize is that she put the higher offices and commands at the disposal of men who were less distinguished for ability than for devotion to her. A very strong provincial aristocracy had by this time arisen in the empire, and from their vast estates a number of able nobles and officers kept a discontented eye on the hierarchy of eunuchs at Constantinople. Theodora, conscious of her vigor and sustained by the prophetical assurance of a monk that she would wear the crown for a long time, maintained her power for three further years and then became seriously ill. It is said that she chose an aged and feeble noble of the city, Michael Stratioticus, to don the purple, but one is rather disposed to see in the choice of Stratioticus the action of the court party, whose influence was threatened by the provincial nobles. Theodora still confided in the monk's prophecy. She had the aged soldier brought to her sickbed and bound him by the direst oaths to promise obedience to herself. She died a few days later, however, on 30th August, 1057, leaving the crown to the frail charge of Michael VI. The historian must regret that Theodora had not a larger opportunity to prove her value as a ruler and exhibit her personality. She was a woman of great vigor and generally high political ideals, and she incurs the reproach only of stooping at times to the common Byzantine level in securing her power. It was not she, but the contemptible Constantine who emptied the treasury for frivolous purposes, and in spite of the light disdain of Celis, her rule compares most favorably with that of most of the emperors. End of section 15. Recording by Nancy Soule, Bainbridge Island, Washington.